From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. We talk with Mark Potok of the Southern Poverty Law Center on the rise of hate groups in America. Also, former NBA player Adana Foyle talks with us about his new book, Winning the Money Game, Lessons Learned from the Financial Files of Pro Athletes. That's next on The Public Morality. Earlier this summer, the nation was shocked when Dylan Roof, at the time of this broadcast, allegedly walked into the Bible study of Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, killing nine people, including its pastor, State Senator Clementa Pinckney. After Roof's arrest, his hate-filled manifesto was made public, as were photos of Roof accompanied by white supremacist symbols, including wearing patches of South African apartheid and Rhodesian flags. Many of the photos also included Roof with the Confederate flag. But what happened after the shooting became a groundbreaking moment for the nation. Many of the victim's survivors faced Roof in court to forgive him. This powerful display of forgiveness touched a moral cord within the nation, including South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who in 2010 ran for governor supporting the Confederate flag, but soon after the attack at Emanuel called for the Confederate flag to be removed from the grounds of the state capitol. As much as the court of public opinion has jumped on the issue in support of taking down the Confederate flag, does this discussion go far enough? Is America's racial tension embodied in the symbolism of the Confederate flag, or should there be actions that go beyond this emblematic gesture? Joining me today is Mark Podak, Senior Fellow at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Mark is one of the country's leading experts on the world of extremism and serves as Editor-in-Chief of the Southern Poverty Law Center's award-winning quarterly journal, Intelligence Report. Why don't we begin, if you just give us just a little overview on the work of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Well, the Southern Poverty Law Center was started in 1971, so a bit over 40 years ago, by two white lawyers in Montgomery, Alabama. 71, of course, was three years after the kind of formal end of the civil rights movement uh, with the assassination of Dr. King. And the basic idea was that somebody needed to carry on the work of the civil rights movement, that it had not been completed. Uh, for many years, it was essentially a, a nonprofit law center. Uh, we did a lot of cases that were kind of classic civil rights work, uh, voter dilution, those kinds of issues. Uh, but the center uh, in the mid-'80s uh, became best known, and I think probably is still best known, uh, for suing uh, groups like the Ku Klux Klan. We've had, oh, I think 11 or 12 major cases uh, against Klan groups mostly, one or two neo-Nazi groups as well. And basically what the groups, what the lawsuits uh, were aimed to do and have been successful at doing uh, is uh, wrecking these groups by uh, getting very large uh, civil judgments against them, judgments they can't pay, and generally they're forced to disband or give up any assets they have uh, to our clients. These will be typically based on criminal cases. A Klansman beat someone up, uh, and then we'll come in after the criminal conviction and file civil case. Uh, that has the effect of marginalizing or even completely destroying the group. Uh, the other thing we do is, uh, in my department, we uh, track and count hate groups and other kinds of uh, radical right uh, extremist groups around the country uh, and, and and do investigative work around that. Okay. I just uh, want to jumpstart from there. I mean, the, as I mentioned earlier um, in the opening, but the, uh, the survivors of this, you know, the tragic shooting in 
Charleston managed to move the needle on the Confederate flag in, in a few days that had not been done in decades, if ever. And I'm sure, as you well know, at least on the Republican side, one can't, could not at least hope to win the South Carolina primary if one did not first pay homage to the Confederate flag. I mean, this is a rapid shift in public opinion, which is truly amazing. But given your work, Mark, uh, are the calls for moving the flag enough? Well, first of all, let me agree with what you said. I mean, this came like a bolt from the blue. Uh, politicians uh, have been essentially protecting the Confederate battle flag and similar symbols uh, around the country, especially around the South, for decades. Uh, I mean, you think about it, uh, perhaps many of these symbols should have been buried uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, and yet they have been allowed to hang on. Um, I'd vote for 150 years ago, but that's, that's <laughs> <laughs> right. But one would have thought if that at the end of the civil rights movement or, or somewhere in that period, uh, they'd be looking at these kinds of symbols. I mean, is it going far enough? Well, I mean, what I can say uh, is I've been just staggered by the sea change. And I don't think, as, as you uh, kind of suggested in your question, that the Nikki Haley's and Lindsey Graham's of the world have had a great moral awakening. Uh, you know, I think they're essentially opportunistic politicians uh, who see that the tide has turned uh, and don't want to be caught on the wrong side. But it's been quite amazing to see uh, the Amazons, the Walmarts, and all kinds of other uh, huge corporations of the world saying, we're not going to handle uh, that anymore. Uh, earlier today, uh, the Birmingham, Alabama uh, City Council, or at least it was reported today, uh, decided to take down a major Confederate memorial in that city. So a lot is happening already. Uh, you know, we've we've uh, called on the governor here uh, to end some other uh, aspects of kind of paying homage uh, to uh, the Confederate soldier and, and the, the southern side of the Civil War. I mean, I think what is likely to happen in all of this is that the Confederate flag really will be deep-sixed. Uh, it's a remarkable moment when we have Jeb Bush and people like that saying uh, this is a racist symbol and it really ought to come down. Um, what constitutes a hate crime? A hate crime, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about this, a hate crime is any kind of crime, pre-existing crime, you know, a murder, an aggravated assault, vandalism, uh, anything like that, but which is carried out uh, with a motive uh, of hatred towards one particular group. And hate crime laws generally name the protected classes. Uh, they might be, uh, you know, race, religion, ethnicity, uh, gender, uh, sexual orientation. And there's a bit of difference, uh, and I think there are 45 states now that have hate crime laws as well as the federal law. Uh, there's a difference from state to state. Uh, where I am uh, in Alabama, in the Deep South, uh, our law does not protect people according to se sexual orientation. And that's simply a matter of the politics of these very, very conservative states. Uh, overall, most states do protect sexual orientation. And, of course, uh, LGBT people are, in fact, the most targeted uh, minority of people in this country with respect to violent hate crime uh, there is. Well, how, how do you respond, and I'm sure you've heard this argument myriad times, that the laws are already on the books. Why do we need hate crime laws? We already have laws on the books. Well, let me explain, first of all, that what the hate crime laws do uh, is they aggravate the sentences. Those laws differ a bit from state to state, but as a general matter, uh, you know, if I were uh, convicted of an aggravated assault, uh, perhaps I'd get a year in prison. 
but if uh, then that was given a hate penalty enhancement, uh, which either the jury or the judge agreed with and signed on to, uh, then it might be two years or even three years. The argument, uh, or there are a number of arguments, but it seems to me the core argument in favor of these kinds of laws is that hate crimes are far more divisive and have far more victims than normal crimes. So if I uh, plant, a, if, I, if there, a cross, a burning cross is left on the lawn of an interracial couple in some particular community, uh, they are certainly terrorized and victimized, but in fact so are every other interracial couple within shouting distance or within distance of news coverage of that event. Uh, same thing, you know, if a black family moves into a white neighborhood. It's not merely the person who is immediately targeted. It is all black people in similar positions. Uh, you know, the other aspect of it is, of course, these crimes uh, aggravate very serious pre-existing fault lines in our society. So, uh, I'm, no, I'm not telling our listeners anything when I say uh, we've had race uh, problems in this country for a very long time. Uh, and there are deep divisions within our communities. So the idea is that these crimes are more injurious to society and should be more seriously punished, both as a matter of uh, sort of justice, I guess retribution, whatever you want to call it, uh, but also as a, a kind of warning to all the rest. You know, I think it's maybe worth saying uh, that we often uh, punish motive. Uh, the, the, the argument frequently made from the right against hate crime legislation is it's, you know, it's a thought crime. We're punishing people for what they think. Uh, but in fact, there are different punishments uh, given uh, according to motive and certain other uh, conditions very often. An example of that would be uh, uh, if I were to kill someone uh, in the state of Alabama and, and, you know, some bar fight or whatever it might be, uh, I might get 20 years in prison. I might serve 12 or 15 of that. But if I were to kill in the very same circumstances a police officer, uh, you can be sure, certainly, that in others, any southern state, I would get the death penalty. Uh, there are other kinds of uh, sort of similes to make. I mean, another one that speaks directly to motive is the idea: if I cross, if I, I, I walk onto your property uh, and you come home and find me on your porch, uh, you know, if I was simply crossing that property because it was a quicker way to get home and happened to step on your porch, well, that's trespassing. Uh, but it's not, uh, you know, some terrible crime. I'm not going to go to prison, uh, presumably, for that. But if I have in my pocket burglar tools, uh, it becomes fairly obvious that it was an attempted burglary. So I haven't actually done anything different in that case, uh, but my motive was much more serious uh, than simply getting home a little quicker. Well, let me ask you, as the country moves more diverse, at least demographically, uh, have you witnessed a rise or a decline in hate groups nationally? Basically, uh, a rise and a dramatic rise. Uh, we have seen these groups, uh, hate groups, and uh, as well as militia groups, so-called anti-government patriot groups, uh, rise uh, fairly dramatically since around the year 2000, and then especially uh, since the year 2008. We saw an enormous jump in the number of militia groups from about 150 uh, to some 1,300-plus uh, in the course of four years. Uh, we think the reason was very clearly and, and distinctly uh, related to the election, of course, in the fall of 2008 of our first black president, Barack Obama. 
Uh, I think the rise in the number of these groups is not uh, simply, uh, you know, a whole lot of people who can't stand the idea of a black man in the White House, but more what that black man in the White House represents, and that is this massive uh, demographic shift that is happening in the United States. You know, this is a country that for most of its history since colonial times has been 90% plus white. That is not true anymore. We're now a little over 60% white, uh, and the Census Bureau has predicted uh, that whites will lose their majority, will fall under 50% of the population uh, by about the year 2043. So there's a kind of sea change going on, uh, and these groups uh, are reacting to it with real fury. And there are also other things. It's not only racial demographics, although I think that's the most important thing. Uh, There are also huge social changes uh, going on. Uh, The most uh, obvious, I think, example of that is the incredible advance of same-sex marriage uh, and ultimately uh, uh, the ruling by the Supreme Court that uh, same-sex marriages had to be recognized in all 50 states. That is really something uh, when you think about people's attitudes a mere 20 years ago. Uh, And now we're seeing the very same thing in the aftermath of Charleston in that uh, the Confederate battle flag uh, is becoming uh, an embarrassment, essentially, something to be taken down, not to be revered. Now, Dylan Roof was has been portrayed in the media uh, as, as a lone wolf. And assuming that's true, let's say in a literal sense, is it accurate to characterize him that way, given your work? Yeah, I think so. Uh, look, I mean, uh, Dylan Roof is quite obviously uh, influenced and kind of inspired Um, by hate groups out there, and by one in particular, the group he named, the Council of Conservative Citizens. This is the group that, quote-unquote, awoke him, uh, you know, to the reality, as he would say, uh, that that white people are under attack by black people and so on. So it is absolutely true that uh, he is getting these ideas from somewhere outside of his own head. Uh, He kind of stumbled across this world of uh, white supremacist websites and forums and so on. Uh, but that doesn't mean he's not a lone wolf. I mean, that is the classic lone wolf. Uh, and that is true in the jihadist world as well. I mean, al-Qaeda has uh, done very well, uh, as well as the, Islam- the Islamic State, uh, at radicalizing people completely through the Internet, uh, not through any personal contact at all. Um, and yet, you know, those people really are lone wolves. Because at the end of the day, what a lone wolf means uh, is a person who carries out his act, his attack, whatever it may be, uh, without direction from someone else uh, and without help or planning or financing uh, with anyone else. And, of course, that makes them doubly difficult to find uh, because there is no conspiracy. It's just one person, and, you know, it's incredibly difficult for law enforcement to figure out that that person uh, is about to carry out uh, some kind of attack. Staying on that thread, again, based on your experience, walk us through how does one become a, a Dylan Roof? Now, I don't mean the violent acts per se, but he's certainly not the only young white male who feels black life should not go beyond the borders of subjugation. So how does one get there? Well, I mean, there is a a whole world, especially on the Internet these days, uh, of uh, people theorizing and talking about uh, what they believe is happening to the country. So there are a series of narratives that not only Dylan uh, Roof, but uh, a number of others, uh, have more or less swallowed whole, and that ultimately leads them to commit these kinds of attacks. Uh, you know, part of the narrative is that the white race uh, in America, if not in Europe as well, uh, is being subjected to a quote-unquote genocide. 
And, you know, it's the silliest thing you ever heard on one level because, of course, even they, when they say genocide, don't mean people are being shoved into uh, crematoriums or gas chambers. Uh, but really what they mean is that white women are giving birth to babies that aren't 100% uh, lily white. You know, I mean, if there's some tiny drop of what they see as, as non-white blood uh, in that baby, you know, that's a child lost to the white race. So this whole kind of mythology around uh, white genocide or the genocide of white people is really based on that idea that, you know, if you aren't quote-unquote purely white, uh, then you're not white at all. And, I mean, it's it's ludicrous beyond words uh, in the sense that, of course, probably, if not a majority, huge, huge numbers of quote-unquote white Americans, in fact, uh, have DNA from all kinds of races. You know, I, I was just thinking as you, as you were talking that I was wondering sort of out loud, uh, could the efforts to remove so say, all the c Confederate souvenirs from public places become uh, a, a potential recruiting boom for white supremacist organizations? Yes, no doubt about it. Uh, one of the, uh, the big uh, neo-secessionist hate group called the League of the South uh, has been talking in just those terms. This will be great for recruiting for us. You know, of course, they've got a desperate sound in their voice as they say it, right? We're under right. attack. We're under siege. Uh, our people are facing cultural genocide and so on. Uh, but, yeah, I think uh, they, they certainly hope that, and there is probably at least some truth to it. Uh, I, you know, without question, uh, Obama's election uh, brought quite a few people into the world of white supremacist hate groups. Uh, so I think the same thing uh, will happen to some extent here. I, I really doubt whether it's going to be some gigantic move, uh, you know, people into the Klan or anything like that because they're angry about the Confederate battle flag. Uh, but, you know, to answer the question, yes, I think it will have some effect like that. How much, in, in, in your view, does this poverty play in the rise of these hate groups? Well, probably not too much. Uh, there's been a fair amount of academic uh, studies looking at that. Uh, and the link between people being in trouble financially uh, and joining hate groups or uh, uh, having essentially uh, fascist or, or racist trains of thought isn't very strong at all. Uh, I think in some cases, as a matter of historical reality, it does matter. Um, and the, the one I'm thinking about is the most recent one. In 2008, when Obama was elected and we saw this enormous rise in certain kinds of radical right-wing groups, uh, that coincided directly with the collapse of the economy. So it can play. It can play in important ways. But if you look at our country and others historically, there are also many periods uh, when you see the rise of, of racist or fascist movements, like in the 1920s, uh, when we were really doing very well. That was the Roaring Twenties. Um, and, you know, or that is when we saw the first uh, real fascist formations in the states, uh, uh, not the 30s. How about our political discourse? How does that contribute to some of the problems you've discussed? Well, I mean, first of all, I think uh, our political, the, the kind of coarsening of our political discourse is in part uh, a function of how the media has changed, uh, how the Internet has changed things, uh, you know, the rise of cable, cable TV and all kinds of talk radio stations and so on. Uh, you know, we live in a world now uh, which is very, I mean, there are lots of negative things to say about the 1950s and the 1960s in America. But one thing uh, that it seems to me was true then was that most people were operating on the basis of the same news. 
You know, we more or less all watch the same TV news programs, more or less read the same newspapers or the same kinds of newspapers, and that's simply not true anymore. So, uh, you know, if you were to put uh, the listeners of uh, uh, MSNBC uh, in one room and the listeners of uh, Fox News in the other, I mean, they're operating on entirely different sets of facts. Uh, you know, I would argue, of course, <laughs> that the MSNBC uh, viewers are a whole lot better informed about what's really happening in the world than, than the Fox viewers, and a lot of studies have, have backed that up. But in any case, uh, you know, they, they, they are uh, completely contrary sets of facts. So, you know, in the real world, uh, there is no plot uh, to impose Sharia Islamic law on the American courts. There are no death uh, panels? But, sorry? I said that there aren't any death panels? Those aren't real? Yeah, right. Just another <laughs> another example. But, you know, in the world of, of Fox, in the world of certain uh, radio stations, in the mouths of certain politicians, you know, there's a conspiracy and it's looming and imminent and, you know, incredibly dangerous. To what extent do you include the Tea Party in what you just said? Well, the Tea Party was, it seems to me, essentially a right-wing populist movement. Uh, a big hunk of it uh, was anger over uh, what happened uh, with the economy, with the bailouts, uh, you know, the, the sort of bankers who got their bonuses after screwing all the rest of us. Uh, and, you know, of course, we saw a left-wing populist movement uh, around the same time in the form of the Occupy Wall Street movement. So, you know, I, I guess further what I would say about the Tea Parties is uh, there are pretty strong strains of racism within that world. I would not describe the Tea Party movement as uniformly racist. I don't think that's true, but it's pretty rich uh, with racist ideas and conspiracy theories and so on. And I think increasingly what's happened with the Tea Party world is that it has come to overlap uh, other kinds of uh, uh, far-right uh, movements and, and ideas. So in the Tea Parties, you will find, uh, you know, very large numbers of people who believe that there's a Sharia law conspiracy, who believe that Agenda 21, uh, United Nations uh, Sustainability Plan, is really a secret plot to impose socialism in America, you know, who believe that Mexico has a secret plan to invade and reconquer the American Southwest, uh, and on and on and on, who believe that uh, you know, there are death panels. Yeah. All, all of our discussions so far... Uh, has really focused on uh, groups associated with the political right. Are there are there hate groups on the political left? Well, I, I think the definition doesn't work very well. First of all, the, the political left is very small and very weak uh, compared to the political right, and that's been true for 20 or 30 years now. Uh, you know, and I'm not denying there has been obviously a real radical left in this country. Uh, you know, many police officers were shot and banks bombed and all that back in the day of the weathermen and, and so on, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, so first off, there's not much of a political left to begin with. And, and to go more to the heart of the question, the left uh, approaches the world, it seems to me, in quite a different way. You know, when we talk about hate, quote-unquote, we are talking about people's animus towards whole groups, whole classes of human beings, all black people, all white people, all the Jews, you know, all Muslims, whatever it might be like that, all gay people. On the left, if you want to describe it as hate, the animus is, is aimed, say, at people not on the basis of their class characteristics or not on the basis of their kind of characteristics that uh, they were born with, but on the basis of what they do. So, you know, on the left, certainly, uh, you know, there are, there are people who hate uh, the big bankers or who hate right-wing Republicans uh, or, or, you know, who hate the rich or whatever it may be. 
uh, but it tends to be more uh, based on what the person actually does or says or what their position in society is as opposed to the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or something like or what country they were born in. I, I want to just go back for just a moment um, to we, how we started this conversation. And a lot of the pushback against removing the Confederate flag or those kind of symbols, as you often hear, this was referred to as Southern heritage. Is there a space to celebrate Southern heritage, however that's defined, that does not include ignoring slavery or oversimplifying its impact on the Civil War or ostensibly the 87 years of Jim Crow segregation? Sure. I mean, look, the reality is is that uh, only one in four Southerners owned slaves. Uh, very many white Southerners were poor whites uh, who really uh, had no interest but were forced to essentially fight the rich man's war. Uh, you know, white supremacy uh, may have uh, brought them some benefits, but it's certainly, you know, they weren't running plantations. Uh, and, you know, there are many parts of the South, like northeastern Alabama, that were essentially uh, sympathetic to, to the Union, to Yankees. Uh, they were smallholders who had no interest in the plantation system, despised uh, the wealthy planters, and so on. So in some ways, uh, the white Confederate soldier uh, was a kind of tragic figure, or at least in many cases. And, you know, there are things uh, – I'm not a hater of the South. There's uh, much to like about Southern culture. I mean, it's true that it's a very generous uh, and kind of open culture in certain ways. But uh, I, I should say that the organized uh, kind of neo-Confederate movement is not like that at all. Uh, you know, there was a group called the Heritage Preservation Association. That is uh, based in Georgia some years ago. That is the group that came up with the very clever and effective slogan – Heritage, not hate. Uh, at least down here in the South, you see that all the time on people's bumper stickers and that kind of thing. And, you know, it sounds good and, okay, heritage, not hate. But, of course, the reality is is that that group, uh, I could tell you a story. I mean, the president of that group uh, was a woman uh, here uh, uh, in Alabama, uh, and we caught her uh, at one point. So we have a photograph of her. Uh, receiving a certificate of appreciation, an award from the Aryan Nation's Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. So, in other words, it was all a pose, right? Oh, we're into heritage, not hate. We just, you know, we don't hate anybody. We just like, you know, our history. It's so interesting and so on. But, in fact, this woman was virtually a Klanswoman. So what I'm saying is that, yes, I think there's a place uh, for not, you know, despising everything Southern and, and, and honoring parts of our heritage as Southerners. Uh, but when you look at the organized movement pushing those kinds of ideas, they turn out to be pretty uniformly racist to the core. You know, I, I think uh, uh, we would also be remiss if all the uh, stuff we've discussed in this course uh, of this half hour that we have made great strides, have we not? I mean, of course. Yeah, and and you know, for people who say, uh, you know, oh, it just it's sort of it's, it's just endless circles of you know, it gets a little better and it gets a little worse. That's absurd. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, the South is entirely different place than it was uh, 50 years ago, or God help us, 100 or 150 years ago. Uh, you know, I mean, this was a very brutal society uh, back in the middle of the 19th century, and that's just not so anymore. Uh, and I think we've obviously made progress as a society, 
And despite uh, the continuing trouble we have, I think we are also uh, clearly headed for a better place. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, it may be 30 years from now, but we are going to be the first genuinely multiracial democracy in the world in the sense that uh, we will be a country in which no one group predominates. Uh, no one group sort of rules the rest. Uh, and that seems to me a very good thing. And, of course, it's a bit of a difficult road to travel, uh, but we are traveling it. And what's happened just in the last few days with the Confederate battle flag, uh, I think, is very good evidence of that. I think you're right. I, I certainly don't think, I don't believe in 1963 that the 16th Street Baptist Church was packed with white parishioners following the, the church bombing that killed four little girls, as was Emmanuel the week before. So I, I do think we uh, have some progress that we need to build on. Mark Potok, I want to thank you for, for being with us on today on The Public Morality and, and, and for the work that you do that's so critical to making this nation better. Thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. That was Mark Potok of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Coming up, my conversation with 13-year NBA player Donald Foyle to talk about his new book, Winning the Money Game. Stay tuned to The Public Morality. Let us turn now to the world of sports. From ballet artistry in midair to breathtaking examples of speed and strength, we marvel at the 21st century athlete, our modern-day gladiators, who at times are deified and other times objectified, but rarely are they seen authentically for their humanity remains tragically invisible. So their potential fall from grace is not only public, it can also be taken personal by adoring fans. We find it hard to have sympathy for someone who had millions and blew it without factoring that many went from poverty to the top 1% of earners practically overnight without the requisite knowledge to handle money. My guest is Donald Foyle, who is attempting to change the narrative in his new book, Winning the Money Game, a 13-year veteran of the NBA, the majority of that time spent with the now world champion Golden State Warriors. Never thought I'd say that in my lifetime. O'Donnell has spent, also spent several years in management with the Orlando Magic. O'Donnell, welcome to the public morality. Thanks for having me. Let's begin by you taking us back to your rookie year and how you came to a place for when you left the game, maybe not physically, but at least financially, you're comfortable. I think part of the, the, the journey has been one of really understanding that this was a very, very fleeting uh, career. I mean, the notion that, you know, the life expectancy of an athlete in basketball is between 4.7 years. Um, so I think for me, coming into that situation, I was keenly aware of how kind of fleeting this is going to be, that I was going to have to figure out what I want to do the rest of my life. And Coming from the Caribbean uh, right off the bat, I thought, well, you know, this would be a great opportunity. I'll be able to transform the lives of my family, being in the NBA, that is. And it would give me an amazing platform to journey into the next phase of my life. But my first year in the league, I remember saying to my parents when I um after the halfway through the season when Spiroled uh, choked PJ that, you know, my career is, uh, I don't know if I could do this anymore. But part of that journey is a journey in psychology, the development of the mind, but it's also pain. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be injured uh, many times during the course of your career. And, you know, to have 
a little bit of things put away for a rainy day is going to help uh, tremendously. Well, you, you actually talk about that in your book, that uh, when you had that career-ending uh, knee injury, that you did have some level of comfort knowing that you had managed your money wisely so it, it wouldn't have been um, a death nail for you. Right, and I mean, I, 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 and I worry so much about other guys. So I know that when I... Uh, I remember when I popped my knee in in summer league. I just remember feeling that sickening feeling, like that it that is it. My career is over. I'm never going to play again. And you know, I tried everything uh, the the following year to kind of get my body back, but it, it was never going to come back from that from that knee injury and that, and those uh, surgeries. But uh, there was this little bit of like, a, okay, you know, I can breathe. I can breathe because I'll be okay. I am I'm, I'm gonna do different things with my life, and this this is gonna be a great opportunity to do that. So to have that kind of blanket, so to speak, you know, is is, is amazing because it gives you the time. And I that's, I was trying to explain to guys all of that. Not so much that you have, you know, a little extra money saved. Is that it gives you time to discover what you want to do next, and that's going to be the hardest thing. Even if you become a great player and you have a lot of money, you still have to figure out what are you going to do for the rest of your life. If your career is over 33 or 34 or 35, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? What do you want to, what do, you want to do? And are you just going to stay home? And I think having um, financial resources give you the choices to go back to school, to work in a career, to take the time to take uh, chances. Uh, we otherwise probably wouldn't if you don't have those resources. You know, when I when I read your book, the first thought that came to my mind is that I know, though it's a fleeting memory, I, I, I hearken back to when I was 22 years old. And, and if someone had given me, say, $10 million, I don't think my first thought would have been to go to, say, Merrill Lynch, let alone Coldwell Banker. So, so give us some insight into the lives and pressures of these young men who make it to the professional ranks. We have athletes from all over the world, but a majority of our athletes come from inner city. We have guys that don't necessarily have the prerequisite academic uh, background. Uh, some of them have had the opportunity to go to college but may not have taken full advantage of it. But there is also this other thing, right, is that if you are basically coming into money at 19 years old and the first time you're really hearing about saving and this kind of stuff, you're going to just make bad decisions. I don't care where you come from, what your background is. Give a 19-year-old of any stripes to hue or color um, millions of dollars, they're going to make some bad decisions. We hope that the decisions that they make, that the bad one wouldn't be as bad, you know, right. that they would uh, at least be able to catch themselves and then, you know, pull it raining back in. But the young people are going to intentionally make bad decisions because look where they come from. The New York Times had an article the other day about how retirees over 50 don't have the requisite skills to really enjoy the retirement because they can't really, they don't have the financial literacy in terms of, uh, um, really helping themselves to prepare themselves for life out of the, the workforce. So it's a microcosm. Athletes represent the microcosm of the greater society, but at the end of the day is that we all in society have these problems. And I think in athlete, when it comes to athletic is that we've seen it in a much larger scale, but it's very much part of who we are as a society. Talking with Donald Foyle, uh, 13-year NBA veteran and author of the new book, Winning the Money Game. Donald, I don't wish to sound degrading with this next question, but for some, isn't a multi 
million dollar contract, especially that first one, on par with many people who win the lottery with, with similar results? I would say so. I mean, I, I, the, the, there is research to, to support that. It, it's so, I mean, unfair in a way, right? You win the lottery, there's a million people coming to tell you that this is what you really need to do with it. College, the college uh, university system has failed you. They have not prepared you. High school has not prepared you. You have been sheltered through the system. And then at the age of 21, somebody hands you mi- uh, millions of dollars. I think it's such an unfair um, situation for athletes because they're not equipped to handle it. Not that they're not smart enough. I mean, I always tell guys, if you can learn 100, 150 plays, 300 plays, and while somebody like Shaq is on your back, you could figure out how to call plays and make a move, you could, you could learn uh, about finances. The question has to be, we have to have a situation where it's become part of who we are and it's become ingrained. I was, uh, my step-parents, when I was um, came to live with them upstate New York, my dad gave me an allowance, and I remember him saying, your only requirement for this allowance is that you need to balance your checkbook at the end of the month. And if you don't, I will deduct whatever that you, you're off. So if you if you don't balance your checkbook and you're off by $5 or $10, I will deduct it from your next uh, allowance. And that was such a simple thing, but it helped me so much because I wanted all my allowance. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I was there trying to find that penny. You know, I, I didn't want to leave anything at the table. And that simple thing uh, was so helpful in me really understanding the importance, not just of, like, you know, having, um, being aware, but input is being vigilant when it comes to your financial um, uh, resources. Uh, going back to something you, you just said, you know, I've watched a lot of NBA games. There are not 300 plays you need to remember. There's just pick and roll and get out of my way. <laughs> There's not 300 plays. <laughs> Okay. All right. All right. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I know Kobe doesn't have 300 plays. I know he doesn't remember 300 plays. Clear out. Clear out. Yeah. Right. Right. One five. You know, he may say clear out 300 times, but that's. (laughs) Um, you know, I know much of your book is based on your 13 years in the NBA and the several years in management with um, Orlando Magic. But in researching this book, was there something that surprised you? I think more, uh, what surprised me most was I remember uh, when I first I started this project as a result, uh, uh, as, as finishing up my master's thesis in sports psychology. I interviewed, I think it was 10 retired uh, NBA players. And I was talking to them about just about what the transition was like from the league. I was thinking about retiring, and I thought, you know, it would be a great opportunity to have an insight into what guys were going through. And I, I just remember, you know, one of the, uh, the the people that I interviewed said to me, he said, you know, I, I played in a time when I really had to consider whether I wanted to be a teacher or I wanted to be a basketball player because I think it was a question of there was a $5 difference, and it was $5 difference went in the direction of being a teacher. And my family was telling me, you have to be be a teacher. It's much more, it's much, much better job, much more prestige, a lot of longevity. And he was like, but I wanted to play basketball, but I had to take a pay cut to play basketball. 
vote. And I just thought, like, wow, <laughs> you know, that is, I mean, to be to be wrong today after where the game has evolved from, I thought that was such a fascinating way to think about why some of these athletes are going to challenge this situation as well, because the game has really become rife with money in the last uh, several years. It hasn't always been the case, and that was one of the things that surprised me. Mm. Uh, does this, in, in some of the financial illiteracy that you've been discussing, what role does fear play in that? I, I mean, I think we're so, uh, I tell you know, if you think of a situation, if you had a player and the player comes into the league, pretty much that player is one of 450 players, uh, best players in the world. There are by definition, a genius, right? You are an NBA player. You have represented the elite of the elite. You are amazing at what you do. You probably never had a wrong step during your athletic career. So in every sense of the word, you are, in a, you, you are basically the highest of the high. And then there is this thing that is called financial education, financial awareness, and you don't really know much about it. And there is this machismo that exists in sports that says, okay, you know, we, you know, we are the best. We have to look like we're the best and we can't be weak. And somehow I think lack of knowledge in a particular sphere is seen as weak. And therefore there is this unbelievable fear to allow somebody to know that you may not know as much as you think you do. And we put up this wall, and I think that that's part of the, the challenge, right? We put up this wall because I don't want you to know that I really don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know anything about financial issues because maybe you will think of me as an idiot. Maybe you will think of me as not as the best basketball player in the world. So we quit the two together. So I think fear has a lot to do with how we look at, um, you know, the situation around us and how we make decisions in that, especially when, when we're not comfortable with things that we don't know and and, not, and really uncomfortable about asking questions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, reading your book, I, I see it, um, I'm, I'm not writing a review here, but I see it um, sort of in a bifurcated manner. On, on, on one hand, you're giving insight into the reality of professional athletes and those uh, uh, who see only the and, and, and those who see only the money they make void of any context. So you're putting some context to the life of a professional athlete. And on the other side, you, you offer strategies that not only the athlete, all of us uh, can can embrace, whether we're making millions of dollars or not. And that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want this to be uh, just about athletes. Athletes are obviously the low-hanging fruit, in my opinion. Because they make so much money, we, it, it's so much more uh, easy for us to talk about them. But we see and we have friends that in, in the society at large that goes through a lot of these difficult situations. We know we have friends, you know, who go out and spend all the money on a Friday and don't have enough to pay rent, uh, you know. So we, we see this situation, and I think if we neglect the fact that athletes comes out of the greater society in which these challenges are there, in which these concerns about money. As parents, we don't talk to kids about money that much because we want to shield them. We want to protect them. You have college debt. You have medical bills. We have all very much the same things that athletes are going to experience within the context of professional sports. The difference is it's going to happen very quickly, and it's going to be a heck of a lot of money for them to deal with. But 
but it's very much something that is uh, very much a part of who we are as a society. And I think the, the, the challenge is, is that how do we get to those questions? How do we start asking questions about what is the role of a university system if not to educate the next generation of people in the areas that they're going to need help in? Uh, professional schools represent such a large share uh, of who we are, and yet there's not a college department that focuses on the art of being a professional athlete or the different skills and different uh, jobs that might be in that area and really start preparing people to take advantage, including athletes. I mean, if an athlete were in a class where they're learning about the business of professional sports, you would think that they might stay a little bit longer in college and may pay a bit more attention in class. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about some of the myriad ways that athletes uh, lose their money. Cause it's not just buying cars and, and, and 40 houses. <laughs> right. Well, we have a very complicated tax system for professional sports call. One of the, the, the aspects of that is called the jock tax. And, uh, you know, they had decided that um, these uh, professional teams coming into munici municipalities and state is a great opportunity to flush their accounting system. So states implementing this tax that basically put a tax on professional athletes for coming in uh, to different areas and play. So uh, an athlete, if you're a basketball player and you play in 42 different places, then you pay 42 different taxes uh, potentially. Um, so if you fall behind, I mean, the first time that you're ever going to be dealing with taxes as, a, as an athlete is going to be dealing with one of the more complicated taxes, which is wow. not only your regular tax, your state tax, your federal tax, but now you have to pay this jack tax. So I think a lot of guys come in and think, oh, well, how difficult could it be to pay by taxes? And then they realize, well, you got to pay it in every state in which you play. And so I think that's right off the bat. That's a slap in the face. And if you don't take the time and invest some time and finding the right people uh, to help you in that area, I think right off the bat, you're, in, you're behind the, uh, the eight ball. Now, I understand... Um... I've seen this one stat tossed around that 50% uh, of uh, NBA players lose their money within five years of retirement. And then I also read is that 80% of NFL players within two years, is that are, – are, are those accurate? Well, I think the numbers uh, – we don't know if the numbers are accurate. And I think that's what's frightening because we haven't had a lot of incredible research uh, institutions that take on the task of finding what these numbers actually are. The numbers might be less. The numbers might be higher. We simply don't know because there's not a consensus on how to go about and find the – do the research and find out, you know, what's going on in this space. And, and I think there's a little bit of hesitation in people of really finding – know the actual numbers. So I would say that the numbers are what we have, but the numbers are not what everyone would agree on. I think we all very much disagree that the number might be more, the number might be less, but that we need to have a long-term study and we need to have institutions coming into this area like universities and really spend some time looking at the numbers and looking at the available data and really come to some consensus about what those numbers are. Well, my, uh, I want to know, why have, hasn't uh, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver hired you? I, mean, I, I have your job title. <laughs> NBA Ambassador for Financial Solvency. See, that's a great title. <laughs> well, I, I, I will say this. I, I think that 
You know, uh, David Stern has been the commissioner for many years, and Adam Silver coming in for the first. I think he's going to have a little bit of time to really look at the program that they have in place right now and really give them a once-over, evaluate them, and then make some decision. And, and, and similarly uh, with the union as well, you know, Michelle Roberts replaced Billy Hunter. So I'm sure that they all are looking, uh, last year they all look at what, the, what programs they have in place, and I'm sure they're going to make changes moving forward about what is working and what needs to be retooled. But, but, but following up on that seriously, by the time you get to the NBA and you've been told to work on your jump shot, work on your footwork, you know, work on your defense, and you and from high school or junior high or middle school all the way to the pros, and you've not been taught anything about finances, is it, is it too late? I mean, I mean, I think if that's what you're working with, there's a lot more you can do. Like, but I mean, giving a guy the first time a player receives a million dollar check in his hand, you're telling him that he now have to pay attention to saving. I, I just think it's too late. We have to be able to hit got these guys, uh, connect with these guys in um, colleges. We have to be able to connect with them in high school, um, AAU program. We got to get them before they get to the NBA. But then if they do get to the NBA, and we're going to have that conversation. It has to be a conversation with people that are like them. You have to go out and find guys who have been through the system, whether they uh, are broke or whether they're financially distressed or whether they're very successful. You need to find mentors that, that play professional sport and pair them with these guys so that these guys can have access to, the, to, to, these, to this amazing mind that have been through the system, that have practical experience. They can tell you what to expect um, when you retire, and they can give you advice in a way that you it's not filtered. So I think that that's part of it. It's not just what you teach, but who is doing the teaching is could be just as important. Mm -hmm. And is that why there are far more stories about the uh, money that Allen Iverson lost, and and not enough about the money that say Junior Bridgman has made since he left the league? I mean, and that's a that's a fascinating story about a man who has not been in terms of financial uh, resources. He hasn't been at the top of the chain, but he's been able to parlay that into credible, you know, ventures that made him a significant amount of money. To be sitting with in front of somebody like that, who have played the game, who is not necessarily the highest paid athlete, but been able to take the money that he did earn and really use it uh, to leverage himself and to take his uh, financial game to a whole other level. I think those stories need to be told and retold, and we need to have people like that sitting in front of these guys and telling them what are the challenges they're going to face when they retire and the importance of being able to have um, opportunities and, and different paths moving forward. Now, for those who may not know, Junior Bridgman was a player who never made more than 350000 in a year playing in the NBA. That's right. And now is uh, making millions with uh, his uh, restaurant corporation. 
Is that correct? That's that's correct. And I mean, he has uh, hundreds of franchise opportunities, and now he's you know passing that knowledge to some of the other players. But I would like that knowledge to be extended to all guys uh, so, uh, across the league, all 450 plus of them, so that they can see tangibly, like think for him to say that you know coming from his mouth, this is what I made during the course of my career. It is you know it's there. Not as much as you guys are going to make, but how important it is to have a different path. In addition to being a cerebral author, you, I, I would, before I let you go, I'd like for you to say a few words about the Kerosene Lamb Foundation, if you don't mind. Oh, man. So the Kerosene Lamb Foundation is, is so near and dear to my heart. I remember growing up in the Caribbean, and uh, the only thing we had was the kerosene lamp. And uh, if by chance you could try to sneak your way across the island and somebody did not have a kerosene lamp on, you'd be totally lost. You'd probably likely to walk right into the ocean <laughs> <laughs> uh, off a cliff. You know, so the kerosene lamp served like this beacon as this way of finding your path uh, through the darkness. And when I became an NBA player, I felt that it was a moral imperative that athletes give back to the next generation to help influence the part of the next generation. And I started doing some camps and uh, really create an opportunity for kids uh, to learn basketball, but more importantly, to understand the importance of staying in school, to uh, really learn about nutrition, literacy, uh, just reading after-school programs, safe place to play. I wanted to create an opportunity for them to find the true purpose. And for me, I think, uh, to understand that I was never the smartest uh, on the island and that, I, you know, there's a lot of people that was left behind. And if we can uh, really reach back and pull somebody forward, I think that is, for me, uh, by definition, what it means to be successful is to help the next generation and to pull somebody forward and give them an opportunity uh, that you've been given and uh, giving them one better. And that website is? Uh, org. That was a Donald Foyle, 13-year veteran of the NBA, his new book, Winning the Money Game. Donald, thank you for being on The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. Coming up, my closing remarks. Join me next week as we speak with former aide to Martin Luther King Jr., Jack O'Dell, as we talk with him about his more than 60 years fighting for justice and equality here on The Public Morality. And now for my closing remarks. As I mentioned in the opening, the simple public act of forgiveness by the survivors of the victims of Emanuel AME Church created a seismic shift in the citadel that once protected the Confederate flag. But some took umbrage with this powerful act of forgiveness. They saw it as weak. Some opined that it is always black people who bear the burden of forgiveness. They went on to say they could not forgive, at least not without some retribution. The notion that historically black people have bore the burden of forgiveness is an accurate one, but it is intertwined with the historical narrative that black people are also the moral index for the nation. Through slavery, lynchings, church bombings, and systematic dehumanization, it has been the pain and suffering of black people that helped the country locate its moral compass. But even after the Supreme Court's 1954 ruling in Brown v. Board of Education, which helped overturn 58 years of legalized segregation, there remained a tension between the law and its practice. So we needed Rosa Parks to keep her bus seat in Montgomery, 
We need to force students from North Carolina A&T to ask for a cup of coffee at the Woolworth Diner in Greensboro in 1960. We needed a letter from Birmingham Jail, a march on Washington, and the valiant efforts of others before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was signed. That inspired students at the University of California, Berkeley, and the free speech movement. Along those same lines rose the protesters who questioned the morality of the Vietnam conflict. But the area where the analysis for forgiveness fails is the myopic way the dissenters defined forgiveness. First, they missed the power of forgiveness. In that one simple act of forgiving the perpetrator of a most gruesome undertaking, they dramatically changed the moral compass of many who merely saw the Confederate flag as a symbol of Southern heritage. Second, they used the misunderstanding of forgiveness in order to fit into their narrative. Forgiveness, at least in a theological perspective, is not about the acts of the other person, but an inward commitment not to be defined by absurdity. It doesn't mean you're okay with the other person or somehow like or accept what they did, but it is a tough determination not to be shackled by the evil committed. Third, they had the luxury not to forgive. The members of Emmanuel AME Church who forgave Dylan Roof possessed no such luxury. They were confronted with a barbaric evil and sought the power of their faith to confront it, and in doing so, transformed the nation. Not only did the members of Emmanuel AME Church exemplify why the historical narrative of black people in America serves as the moral index for the nation, but through their pain, they shone the bright light of redemption, which is the only path toward a more perfect union. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.